Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmitty, Swanee and Clarky visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. All right, how are we? Really great. great. How are you? Great, great. I'm very well. We're still, boys are still in Milan. and Still? Still? Yeah, we're, because they're in Milan and they're having a jolly good time off, we're recording back to back. So we've had a tiny little break. I'm still tired, but good. And I guess we should just introduce who we are. I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. <laughs> and I'm Clarky. And together we are Trial by Wine. What are we drinking? Glad you asked. We've moved on from the Cafe Sporto <laughs> to a little uh, Fever Tree Tonic water. Oh. Mm-hmm. And a Peroni Crudo. Graduated. And the Peroni uh, Crudo, whilst it looks like it's Peroni, is actually just water, cold water. Oh, yeah. oh trickers. Because mm. it's, it's still... Truth, oh, yeah, it's only 11. I was going to say they're starting early. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough, yeah. fair enough. Although Swanee what and I back two? in the day would have been on it by now if we were in oh. Milan. <laughs> Get I keep seeing people dog. saying how hot it is in Rome, whatever. So I was like, do you remember how hungover we were and yeah, how it hot like it was in Rome? 38, 39 degrees. Oh. And that's when you oh. made me pose in front of the, the bus oh. and said, love ya. Love ya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. I have moved on to a Brookvale Union vodka lemon lime and bitters, which some friends of mine left when we went camping. They gave it to us, and it's actually very nice. I can recommend that one. And Swanee, nice. Uh, I'm going to stick with a Coke Zero, but I I do have a new drink that I want to share with everybody, which was one that I picked up when I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and it's not new. But it was the first time I'd ever had it and we were out one night with a girlfriend and she said, oh, do you want to try something refreshing? And I said, yes. And she pulled out a line of Coke. It's an, she's French. And, and she drink. said it was a, a du Hugo Spritz and it's a Hugo Spritz. And <laughs> the, hard, the hardest thing is saying Hugo, which does not come off my tongue very well at all. But you serve it in a large glass with lots of ice and then it's Saint-Germain is the, Saint-Germain is the liqueur, which is an elderflower elder liqueur. Yeah. So you have a little bit of that with a bit of Prosecco and then, I guess, soda water or sparkling water and then with mint and lime. So, boys, try and find them while you're in Milan and have a couple for me. Um, But they were just so good in hot, hot weather. So I was having them every single time we'd have um, aperitif, aperitifo for you, having that. That's the best bit, right, as your starting drink. It's got a little bit of sweetness to it. So when you're super hot and sweaty, uh, you know, a bit of sugar, I think it's really quite good. But nice and okay. cool as well. And that's my my new drink of choice. Hugo Spritz. Apparently it's Austrian or something initially. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Like an yeah. Aperol Spritz, but without the Aperol. Saint Germain instead and different garnish. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Mm, yeah, delicious. delicious. So make sure you try that before we, we meet again, please. Who's got a story for us? Me, me, me. Me, me, me. All right. Go for it. So as you know, we're traveling, and so mm-hmm. I thought I'd start a few episodes around our travels. So the first one is going to be a flight-related story. Okay. So my sources are simplyflying.com, iata.org, 
mondac.com, ahbl.ca, Wikipedia, of course, sydneymorningherald.com, Retro Focus on YouTube, abc.net.au and crimetraveller.org. So there is a crime in there. Ooh. Crime Traveller. Yes. Crime Traveller, I like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> but firstly, let's explore how, how international flight law works because I feel like we've discussed how cruise law works, we've discussed how space crime law <laughs> works. So let's do flight law. And as you can imagine, there's some strong similarities between cruise and space law. So the simplest example of international flight law is when an aircraft is on the ground. In this instance, the country in which the plane is landed is the one whose laws apply. If the plane is in the air, however, the Tokyo Convention of 1963 states that the laws of the country of registration of the aircraft apply to acts committed on board. So similar to cruise crime. Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are cases (laughs) where the country whose airspace the plane is in can apply their laws, usually when they are involved in some way. The Montreal Protocol 2014, however, makes several improvements to the Tokyo Convention by expanding jurisdiction over offences to also include the state of the operator and the state of landing. Further, if an aircraft diverts to a third state, it gives the state the competence to exercise jurisdiction at its discretion. So if there's an onboard incident and they divert to another country, where it lands can actually be the one that, you know, where the laws apply. Alcohol consumption is an interesting one. So obviously in the US, the drinking age is 21, whereas in Australia or Britain or whatever, it's 18. So if you're aged between 18 to 21 and flying from the US to the UK, the country in which the plane is registered will determine whether or not you can drink on the flight. So I'd recommend that Ah. you book on a flight that allows you to drink if you're wanting to do that. (laughs) Let's take the hypothetical case that we took with space crimes, that Schmitty flies to Rome (laughs) aboard a Singapore Airlines flight to abduct a soprano for her soap-making business. Oh, not the second bit. (laughs) I love Singapore Airlines. My favourite airline, yep. Possibly to La Scala, though, you could be coming. Uh, Yeah, I've been there. Anyway, go on. Right. So should that scenario play out, if on the flight home the soprano sings help and Schmitty attempts to shut her up but gets caught (laughs) and charged with unruly behaviour, which laws are going to apply? Help! Exactly like that. That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking, yes. And then you try to shut her up. Shit gets real. So if the plane is still on the tarmac in Rome, then Schmitty would be tried under Italian law. If the plane has taken off, however, under the Montreal Protocol 2014, it will likely be dealt with by the destination country. So if it's on the Rome-Singapore leg, then Singaporean law. If it's on the Singapore-to-Melbourne leg, then under Australian law. However, if the flight gets diverted to Dubai, then she would be dealt with under UAE law. If the country isn't a signatory to the Montreal Protocol, then the Tokyo Convention will apply, complicating things further. So I think you get the picture. It's not not clear-cut at all. Anyway, that's my little lesson on uh, international flight law. Let's get to the crime. Are you ready? We are. Absolutely. Basic breath. So we're getting in the timey-wimey machine and going back to the 26th of May, 1971 and 128 Mm. passengers are on board Qantas Flight 755 from Sydney to Hong Kong when the crew begin telling passengers that due to technical issues they need to divert to Brisbane. The plane reaches Brisbane airspace at 2.22pm 
and the plane begins circling at just below 32,000 feet, escorted by an RAAF Phantom fighter bomber. The plane then makes its way slowly back to Sydney as the crew begins searching for a small object. They search the passengers' personal belongings as well, as pulling off panels, ripping up carpet and removing light Jesus, fittings. imagine if you're on that flight and you're <laughs> taking the light fittings out. Far yeah, out. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Nothing to we be worried a, about? We were on a flight just yesterday and the lavatory sign was hanging down a little bit <laughs> and I pointed it out oh. to Stuart and he didn't know about this story. I pointed it out to Stuart, he goes, don't worry, I'll just push it back when we go past. <laughs> anyway, Swanee, um, do you remember when we were on a flight to Sweden? I'm going to say, I don't remember the flight, no, what are we doing? Well, you were on my right side and on my left side there was a man who may have been Arabic, he might have been, yeah. and this was in the... 2000s and it was after 9-11 it was after 9-11 and this man I got on the flight you know I was like oh yeah whatever but he looked really nervous and looked really shady and he was sweating and it wasn't hot and I thought oh god certainly wasn't and it turned out I think he was just a very nervous flyer because he farted Mm. The entire <laughs> way. And, and for some reason, because you don't smell anything or at the time. I do now, but I didn't then. Yeah, you had no sense mm. of smell. So you just sat there, happy as Larry, and I sat there in, <laughs> in, the stench. in a miasma of nervous flyer. <laughs> and, and then when we got there, it was bad weather. And I think we came, this is the one time I thought I was going to die on a plane. We went to land and they, they said, oh, we have a problem with visibility. And I don't know how close we were to the ground, but all of a sudden the plane, you know, uh, you know, accelerated, accelerated and took, and took yep. right off again. Yep. And you could feel the tension in the plane, let alone people ripping out the lights and, and looking out <laughs> the carpet and whatever, anything like that. And it was like, oh, my God. And when we landed, it was one of those Pope moments where I just wanted to kiss the ground. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Firstly, I don't have to smell that man again. And we made it alive. Sorry, I digress. Go on. Yes. So back to the story. So unlike you, Schmidt, all the while the passengers on Flight 755 remained calm with no panic at any time. They must have been a hardened bunch. Inside voice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the plane arrives to the airspace above Mascot Airport in Sydney and Captain Selwyn informs air control that he has enough petrol to keep the plane in the air until 7pm at the latest and begins circling over the ocean waiting. What was the time now? Uh, 2.22 was when they were in Brisbane, so let's say an hour, so 20 past three maybe. Yep. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So rewind a couple of hours and the Australian Department of Civil Aviation receives a phone call from Mr Brown who explains that Mm. he has hidden a bomb on board Qantas Flight 755. Yeah, I figured that's what he was looking for, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Fuck you, Of course, the team is sceptical until Mr Brown says that he has hidden an identical bomb in Locker 84 at Kingsford Smith International Airport. Police are called and they head to Locker 84 to see what they can find. They open the locker to reveal a bomb constructed out of unprimed gelignite and an ultimeter along with three letters. The first letter is addressed to Qantas General Manager Captain RJ Ritchie demanding $500,000 ransom to be in unmarked $20 notes in exchange for instructions on how to dismantle dismantle the bomb on QF-755. The second letter reiterated that a second bomb was located on QF-755 
and the third letter warned that the bomb was set to explode should the plane go below 20,000 feet. Oh, <laughs> this was like a very old school crime. Like this I'd is say, the plot of... Um, it definitely like a plot of a movie. Yeah, the one in the bus with Sandra Bullock and Keanu Speed. Reeves. That's it, Speed. This film was called Heights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. To put the ransom note into perspective, at the time you could buy a house in a working-class suburb of Sydney for less than $15,000 and they're asking for half a million. Whoa. But also half a million in $20 notes. How many $20 notes is that? That's a lot of $20 20, notes. Yeah, 25000 I Googled that. Oh, sorry, I Googled that. I calculated yeah, that. You need, you need someone to ask. How many? 100% 25,000 notes. How would you, like, how much would we expect that to be? Suitcases for work? Did you do that? Well, we'll get to that. It's a pallet? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay, go go on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. But also it was $20 notes because that was the biggest note at the time. You're kidding me. We didn't have a $50 note then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. I didn't know that. Didn't have a hundy. No, hundies. Didn't have a hundy. Yeah, yeah. Pineapples. This sets in motion the events described earlier as air traffic control try to mitigate the risk whilst the investigation begins. So they're really on a time frame. Okay. So in addition, Qantas writes a cheque on the Reserve Bank for half a Where million dollars. Where has this dollars. flight come in from? You did say to start with. Uh, Sydney to Hong Kong it was going. Yep. So it's back at Sydney now. Yes, that's right, yeah. And diverted to Brisbane. Yeah, and then came back escorted by an RWF I've Never heard fighter. of this. Oh, right. It's, oh, I'm, not, I'm surprised Qantas don't talk about it more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would the IAAF fighter be doing? Yeah. I know. What would it do? I was just watching it blow up. catch people as they yeah. blow just Yes, waving. essentially. Oh. It's just to give them a bit of, just to give the pilot a bit of moral support. It's okay. <laughs> Everything's it's okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come We've on, guys. Back, keep it going. Don't worry. What do they do? They scramble them, don't they? Isn't the word? They scramble. Yeah. Like, it's, I don't understand what scramble you scramble. Scramble fighter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so they, so they write the cheque on the Reserve Bank and a dozen senior executives begin bundling and bagging $20 notes at this stage just as a precaution. <laughs> Could you imagine? Police want to confirm the critical altitude for the bomb, so they disassemble it and replace the gel ignite with a light bulb. The reassembled bomb is then put into a second plane, a Boeing 707, to test if it would actually explode upon descent. The plane climbs to 8,500 feet and then begins to descend. At approximately 5,000 feet, the bomb, in inverted commas, is triggered and the light comes on, indicating that it would indeed explode. Oh my God! Have a bomb on it. That seems like an extreme thing to do. Let's just call this bluff. We'll just we'll just pop it up in another plane. You know what I mean? Like who does that? They didn't call it. They didn't call this bluff. They did the opposite. No, no, but they were like, oh, we'll just we'll just make sure this isn't bullshit. I'm surprised. I mean, I just would assume yeah. it's not theory. bullshit because the worst case scenario is that everyone dies on that plane. Do you know what I mean? But this is, I think it's quite remarkable. Okay. Right. So they're, they're, whilst, whilst they're planning for the half a million, they're also doing all of this. Would he have been able to, if he got the money in those days, would he have been able to remotely turn the, you know, de- not detonate the bomb? What's the opposite? Like, um, not have it go off. Just yeah, well, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, Turn, stop it from going off. Stop Disable. it from going Dis- off. Disable it, that's what. Yeah, yeah. So he was, and, and we come to this a little bit later, but he's actually saying as they work through it that he will give them instructions oh, how on to, how to, how to disable it. it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So okay, where okay, it is okay. and how to, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. It's not quite speed yeah. because I think he had I think no, he had a radio These days you could do it all it. remotely yeah, back yeah, in the day. Yeah, it would be a bit trickier. Yeah. So so he said that there's two bombs, one on the plane, one in the locker. They've got yep. the bomb from the yep. locker, locker, worked out that it has gel ignite. 
and yeah. that the altimeter says that it will go off at 5,000 feet. Obviously, tensions become really heightened and the authorities set up a radio link with Captain Selwyn on board QF755. So while the plane circles the skies, Mr. Brown speaks with Deputy General Manager Phil Housen. They talk at 2 p.m., 3 p.m. and 4 p.m. And each time Mr. Brown provides more information regarding the ransom. At 5.30 p.m., Mr. Brown explains how the money will be delivered. He wants 500000 in used, unmarked $20 notes, so $25,000 $20 notes. Mm-hmm. And at this point, Qantas knows that their flight has little over an hour of fuel left and pressure continues to mount. Eventually, they agree to the ransom and Mr Brown states that a yellow van will park outside Qantas House in Sydney. The driver will wave keys out the window to identify himself, after which time the exchange can take place. He warns that the van must not be followed. At approximately 5.45pm, the yellow Volkswagen combi van pulls up and the driver waves the keys out of the window. Classy. The driver is wearing a disguise. Guess what the disguise consists of? A wig. Black moustache and glasses. I've got Scooby-Doo. I've got Scooby-Doo vibes from the yellow combi van. I don't know. What is Scooby-Doo. It <laughs> It's, it's literally what Stuart said, glasses, a wig and a fake moustache. Like it just <laughs> seems like it's such a stereotypical thing. So, Schmidty, two blue suitcases full of cash are passed right, through the okay. window of the van and the van drives off with half a million in ransom money. At approximately 6pm, Mr Brown calls Mr Housen and advises that there is no bomb on board QF755 and the plane begins its descent at approximately 6.40pm landing safely at Sydney Airport. <laughs> Roll chat. Ha, 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 half a, a mil. <laughs> they pulled the plane apart. Oh, you <laughs> fell for it. <laughs> so It's not as good as snakes on a plane, though, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. So rewind what to England. What is it with it's these July motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Rewind. Yep. It's July 1969 and Peter Macari is arrested on charges of indecent assault and is later released on bail. He sells his fish and chip shop to his brother for roughly 6500 and in August of that year he skips bail and using a false passport sails to Sydney, Australia. You know what they say. He finds employment running a fiberglass furniture and <laughs> boat building business. Yeah. Uh, running a boat building business in Brookvale where he meets future accomplice Raymond Pointing. Now let's head to Townsville in March 1971, two months before the incident. Peter McCary watches the 1966 oh, television thriller film The Doomsday <laughs> Flight in which a bomb with an altitude-sensitive switch is hidden on board a flight. According to witnesses, after seeing the film, McCary said that would be a good way <gasps> to make money. In, eight, in April, Macari heads to Mount Isa, where he meets Francis Sorohan, Sor- Sor- <clears throat> who works in the local mines. Sorohan steals Jellignite and a dozen detonators and sells them to Macari for $100. Then, on the 11th of May, Macari buys an ultimeter and has all the equipment he needs to build his bomb. He then offers his mate Raymond Pointing $50,000 to help with the bomb threat. Pointing agreed and types out three letters detailing the instructions for the investigators 
that would later find um, <clears throat> that would be later found in locker 84. On the 25th of May, the night before the plan unfolds, Pointing drives Macari to a Hertz rent-a-car business in Alexandria where they steal keys and subsequently a yellow <laughs> Volkswagen. That's a hire vehicle. Combi That's van. great. <laughs> it's, it's so good, yeah, yeah. But the day after Macari drives away with $500,000 in cash, police offer a reward of $50,000 for information leading to the capture of the hoaxer. And as you can imagine, it's a popular I offer. I bet it was. And police receive over 14,500 calls regarding the reward. Imagine if you go through the detail of those 14,500. Like a mansion, but you could also buy, what did you say it was? Yeah. 10,000 or something to buy a house? 15,000. 15,000 for a. But imagine going through 14,500 calls to find a detail. Phonetic experts are brought in to listen to recordings of phone calls with Mr. Brown. And they determine that he is likely an Englishman from the Midlands who was most likely recently emigrated wow, to Australia. That's cool. Police cross reference this information with criminal records in England, working closely with Scotland Yard, Interpol, and the FBI, narrowing down a list of suspects. Two weeks later, police discover that the gel ignite and detonators used in the Locker 84 bomb were the same as that being used in the Mount Isa mines. This suggests that Mr Brown works or used to work in the mines or Or knows someone who does or did. That is really good place work. Then in August. It's extraordinary. It's it's incredible. Then in August, an observant observant service station attendant notices that a young barman, Raymond Pointing, has been (laughs) splashing cash, buying himself an E-type jag. (laughs) And a Ford Falcon GT. Tony had a Tony had an E-type He reports it to the police and it got stolen and, d- and used in a cash a, sta- a smash and grab. Yeah. Anyway. Oh wow. Oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time for it. That's another story. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's another podcast. So he reports it to the police and detective place pointing under surveillance, and soon after discover he has a cashed up friend mm. Peter Macari, who is driving a brand new Chevrolet Camaro. <laughs> which they tail through Darlinghurst before eventually arresting Macari. A few hours later, they arrest Pointing outside his Bondi Junction (gasps) apartment. The Junga. Once detained. The Junga. Yeah, the (laughs) Junga. Once detained, Pointing sings like a canary, confessing to his part in the hoax. And just like that, they have their suspects who are quickly arrested and charged with demanding money with menaces and stealing a motor vehicle. How's that demanding money with menaces? What a great <laughs> name for a crime. Macari was also charged with carrying a grenade at Sydney Airport. So they've got their suspects, uh, they've got their charges, but what about the cash? Well, soon after the arrests, a bricklayer working inside a house in Annandale tipped off police that someone other than himself was responsible for a section of fresh work. He said it had been done one night the week before, and there was a fireplace behind the wall, which was now bricked up and cement <laughs> rendered. The tradesman had shown detectives the location in the room on Friday evening, and police had assigned an officer to guard the residence that night. At 8.30am on Saturday morning, a team of six detectives using sledgehammers had smashed in the wall. Inside the fireplace was a cardboard carton, which once housed a toilet system. <laughs> When they opened the box, they discovered two green disposable plastic garbage bags tied with rubber bands. They were stuffed with bundles of $20 notes. 
I feel sorry for whoever bought that house 30 years later and was doing a reno and didn't find find a cistern box (laughs) stuffed with cash. Yeah, yeah, damn it. The detective searched the rest of the property, breaking holes in the floors of each room and looking in the roof and the backyard. Despite a thorough search, no more of the Qantas ransom was found. Whoops. They counted the stash and found it totaled $138,240. And incidentally, Schmitty, that's $6,912.20 notes. (laughs) Imagine counting that. (laughs) The amount of money that they've got would have not been easy easy for them to spend, you know, because things were not that expensive. But they're so stupid. At all. They're so stupid. I mean, just sit yeah. on it. They should have gone well away, go away from where they were. Go away and sit on it. Or, yes, go away and pretend yeah. you're someone else entirely yes, and start up with a fake story about where you got all that's that money. You yeah. yes. That's what you do. That's what you did. Yes. yes. <laughs> I am Correct. the grand marchioness of bloody blah, blah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> from the Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> So, in 1972, Qantas auctioned off the blue suitcases used in the ransom along with the cars that Macari and Pointing had bought with their cash. And in July 1973, a tenant in Balmain contacted police as they were suspicious of the placement of some floorboards in their home. A subsequent search of the house led to the discovery of another $137,000 in cash. Macari had allegedly hidden in the house for a few days after the hoax. Why would you call police about your floorboards? Yeah. I just oh, I, I don't want to touch them. I'm a bit nervous. I think I'm feeling very suspicious. Oh, I, so I'm weird. My landlord will kill yeah, me. Oh, I, I think it's weird. I mean, they could have found $137,000. Yep. Wouldn't yes. you just want to, like, take a little bit and go, oh, here you go? Jeepers. You see, the other one had 138000 yeah, yeah. and this one only had 137000 and I'm suspicious. I uh, know. Although this one is 137 with three zeros, not a random amount, so I don't think that 137 was accurate okay. reporting. I'm just putting it out there. So Makari was questioned on the whereabouts of the remaining cash and he said that there was a third accomplice <laughs> named Ken well, who had I wondered over $200,000 of the house. No, I wondered about that because 138, 137, yeah. I thought this is divvied up. Yeah. There's someone else in this. Yeah. So according to Makari, Ken was part of a large gang and was the oh. mastermind behind the hoax. However, police dismissed this story as there was no evidence of a third Idiots. accomplice. To date, only $260,000 of the ransom has been Someone recovered. else has got 140000 There are rumours that the rest... And that would be... 240000 No, but another 140000 would take it to four hundred. I swear there's more people involved. Anyway. And it's, yeah, it's 500000 though, that they got. Uh, so there are, there are rumours that the rest is hidden <gasps> underwater off oh, one right. Beach. That's it. We're going to go do some treasure hunting. Sure people have been doing that for... Yes. I know, right? Yeah. So there were also uh, things I read that said that's not true. Wouldn't matter just in now. case people are actually notes, thinking of going and doing and they that. Were, and they would have been paper. Yeah, that's yeah. Not none, good. Of it, none of it's any good at yeah, all. Yeah, paper. Yeah. Yeah. They're all just mulch. Imagine coming out with $200,000 of $20 notes in paper. People no, looking at you. You would have had what? to have been laundering that some time ago to make that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now to the trial. So an initial trial started on the 5th of October 1971. Uh, on Friday the 8th of October, at the start of the day's proceedings, Mr Burney, speaking for his charge, stated that his client wished to plead guilty to the charges against him. He added that the defendant had listened to all the evidence produced in court and understood a trial was inevitable. 
magistrate Mr Lua and allowed the police prosecutor Sergeant R Thomas to complete his testimony, advising that it was a better legal procedure to hear all the evidence. The charges against the co-accused Francis Sorohan were dismissed. He was the one who um, stole the gelignite. Mr Lewis said that although Sorohan had stolen gelignite and detonators from a place of employment, the Mount Isa Mines Limited, he was not satisfied the defendant was aware of the type of crime Macari had planned, especially given that he was paid a mere $100 for the gelignite. Sergeant Thomas gave testimony as to the evidence against Macari and pointing, and as the hearing concluded, Mr Lewis said that there was no doubt a prima facie case had been made against Macari. When asked if there was anything he wished to say, Mr Brown uh, or Macari replied, I have nothing to say, sir. He was then committed for sentencing at Sydney Quarter Sessions on all three charges. On the 27th of January 1972, the two guilty men stood in the dock of a hushed courtroom at Sydney Quarter Sessions. There was a large gathering of journalists and reporters in the press gallery and a handful of people in the public gallery. The proceedings were over in 10 minutes. The circumstances of this crime are notorious. Your threat disrupted a major international air service and caused fears of imminent death to dozens of people. Judge Staunton sentenced Peter Pasquale Macari to the maximum 15 years for pleading guilty to all three charges, uh, and he fixed a non-parole period of nine years. His accomplice, Raymond James Pointing, was handed down seven years for his part. It was announced in the Sydney Morning Herald on Wednesday the 12th of November 1980 that Mr Brown had been deported to Brisbane the previous night. Following his release from Long Bay Jail, Peter Macari was driven under Federal Police Guard to Sydney Airport. The Minister for Immigration, Mr McPhee, issued a deportation order as a matter of course. The Qantas extortionist had arrived in Australia in 1969 under a false oh. name and passport. As there was a prior criminal record in his native England, he would not have been entitled to entry. Therefore, they sent him on home. It was later reported that Peter Macari replied philosophically when asked about the whole affair, intimating that the nine years he had spent in prison was a high price and that crime <laughs> did not pay. <laughs> it is believed that Peter Macari died by suicide around 2013. Oh. So, Schmidty, back to all of that talk of it sounding like a movie, there were a number of similar instances across the globe following the release of the Doomsday Flight. Four days after Macari's hoax, an interview was published with Rod Serling, screenwriter of the 1966 film The Doomsday Flight. By now, The Doomsday Flight had inspired three extortion plots. Serling expressed regret over writing the film, stating that he didn't realise there were so many kooks in the woodwork. <laughs> Later, on the 4th of August 1971, a similar incident was carried out in Denver, Colorado on a British Overseas Airways Corporation flight with 380 passengers on board. The United States government became involved and urged 500 television stations to ban the film. Back in Australia, at 1.44pm on the 4th of July 1997, a man contacted Qantas under the pseudonym Mr Brown and he stated that he had hidden a bomb on a Boeing 747 flight uh, on Qantas Flights 27 from Sydney to Hong Kong. And like Macari, he said the device would explode if the plane descended below 6,500 metres, so 21,000 feet. 
he demanded $505,000, which seems to be the biggest yeah, hoax. Yeah. Adjusted for. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and said that the bomb contained tripwires to prevent it being diffused. He also said that he was able to remotely detonate <laughs> it if Qantas did not meet his demands. Like Macari, the man also demanded the money in used banknotes and that they should be delivered inside a suitcase to his hotel. New South Wales police were notified and upon further review of the technical information given by the man, they deemed the threat a hoax. Authorities reached this conclusion as not only was deactivating the bomb via remote control deemed impossible, but the hoaxer also relayed inconsistent instructions to Qantas and displayed technical ineptitude. It was highly unlikely the hoaxer would have been able to hide the device on the plane. After the threat was deemed a hoax, Qantas was able to trace the origin of the call and delivered two bags full of (laughs) phone books to the hoaxer to give him the impression there was money inside. At 8.15pm, Flight 27 landed safely in Hong Kong. The calls were being made from a motel where the hoaxer stayed the night. This next day, he arranged a taxi to deliver the bags to his residence and the police followed the taxi and arrested the hoaxer once he took possession of the bags. And lastly, uh, popular culture has a couple of other references to the hoax. The 1971 Australian singer Peter Hiscock released a single titled A Certain Mr Brown detailing the events of the hoax, and I will play that for you (laughs) shortly. And in 1986, Australian television film Call Me Mr Brown was written and directed by Australian director Scott Hicks uh, based on the events of the bomb hoax. Qantas actively tried to stop the film being made and despite failing to do so, Network 10, which has invested $250,000 in the film, refused to air it. The film was eventually was released bad? on video in 1990. <laughs> it was that bad. And that, my friends, is the uh, story of the Qantas bomb hoax, oh, the greatest I did not. Australian Never extortion. Heard of it. Neither have I, which is good. Well done. Incredible. Very interesting. Incredible. Hey, I hadn't heard of it either. It's not talked um, about, but is it? Do you want to hear the song? Yeah. I bet it's great. Mm-hmm. It's bad. <laughs> so just, bra- just I figured if it was good, you wouldn't be playing it for us. Is forever Brilliant. enriched by hearing that. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh. And mm. I don't understand how he can get. Oh, I suppose the person who wrote that's been dead for fifty years. Otherwise, that's incredible <laughs> plagiarism. 
Mm. Yeah, it's ripping off the shears. Oh, boys. Oh, shears, boys. Very interesting story, Clarky. I didn't know that. Oh. I mean, I can see why it's not. To- I, 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 I to hadn't about. never heard, heard of Australia's it greatest heist that I've never heard of. Yeah, on a lowdown. So imagine that though. they actually got half a million dollars in 1971. I can't believe that. That's crime doesn't pay. In a yellow combi van, wearing with a driver wearing a disguise of glasses, wig, and a fake moustache. It wouldn't happen today. But talk about laughable. But yeah, there you go. My favourite bit was that they sent another plane up to see whether or not the bomb was real. That's just a bit of support. Impressive. And and the. RAF fighter following them. I'm like, what for? <laughs> He's got to get out the way if it mm. blows up. It's going to create a lot of turbulence for him. I reckon it had a big net so that if it did explode, it was just going to try oh, to catch as much yuck. of the debris as it possibly could. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking about this in the context of, you know, there were a lot of hijacking of planes, mm. you know, like in a serious mm. note. This story, you know, a lot of it sort of, A, didn't hear it and a bit laughable and, you know, we talk about it being like um, a a film, but the people on board, I mean, I know you tell me that they were all calm, but that must have been terrifying. It's it's the Mm. stuff of my nightmares. Yeah, I think think certainly being a a crew member who knew that you were looking for a bomb. It's worse than snakes on a plane. Yeah. It is, it is. I can't watch anything like that. There's another... um, the plane story, the one with the um, movie story with Jodie Foster where the daughter goes missing on the plane or whatever else. What's that called? Yes, I've seen that. Oh. That's, I can't. And there's a yeah, fake that, was that US Marshal or something far-fetched. on board and he's. There's stuff like that I can't remember. It's such a long time yeah, ago. I, I, I will I not allow suspenseful. myself to, mm. to look at that again because, you know, travelling on a bus, like I don't want well, she? I don't want to know what's possible. Didn't she design the plane? And then they made her go into some part of it. So in like the heart, uh, sorry, the where the luggage is. I can't remember myself. No, but can I ask, is it called the Red Eye? Is it called the Red Eye or something like that? Uh, I could be making know. that up. Anyway. Don't, don't yeah, I mean, look it up. there were hijackings happening around in the 70s. So, you know, as much as it sort of sounds like, ha, 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 isn't that silly? There were enough things going on that people would have had a heightened sense oh, yeah. of fear. About these things. Flight and, plan, oh, it was absolutely. called, Trudy. Thank you. And Flight plan. Aviation engineer Kyle is flying yeah. back to New York with Julia, her six-year-old daughter, and the coffin of her husband. Oh. During the flight, okay. Kyle wakes up from a nap and discovers Julia is missing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. That was a bit creepy, but, you know, also a little bit far-fetched. But, but you know, like you're sitting there and I think these flights would have been pretty expensive too. It would have been a big deal to be on an international flight. And you've saved Absolutely. all your money and you're on this flight and then some prick decides to, <laughs> you know, just terrify everyone on board and, like, it's good that there was no bomb on board but just the whole thing is and the time because if they were, they were trying to keep it in the air, the fact that it wasn't until 6 o'clock, they only had an hour of fuel left. Like it was, oh. it really was like speed, you know, like it really was very Ooh. tense. And you know mm. what it's like when you're stuck on a flight and you're not going anywhere that you want to go anyway and you get really tetchy and whatever, then to think, well, we could be going to die. You know, you say they can't, but I bet everyone was just sitting there quietly terrified. It's a lot to process, it's isn't it? It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd never mm. fly again. So, yeah, I think no, probably not. someone needs to throw yeah, the that, book that at these guys. Yeah, that whole calmness would. Mm. I think yeah. that. 
The, the calmness would just be that absolute Absolutely. stress. I think these guys probably need to be flown somewhere because, you know, it's related to their crime and maybe thrown out of the plane at certain altitude with a bomb strapped to them that may or may not go off by a certain... So they either splat on the ground or they this blow up. This sounds like speed. Or they <laughs> blow up, but either way, they're, they're done so. It does. That, I yeah. think that would be my sentence, you know, and but the high enough that the, as they're falling... They're very aware of what's going on and they're experiencing a great deal of terror, but it doesn't really matter because they're going to end up not with us anymore at the end of it one way or the other. Oh, I know that was a bit harsh, but no, no, I just like it's had that kind of like larrikin thing about it, but but the actual ramifications of it are pretty severe and serious, yeah. But, yeah, it does have that kind of, oh, this is a good way to make money, guys, (laughs) you know. Yeah, Yeah, it does it, what silly guys, yeah. No one, no one was hurt. It's, it's not a right. victimless crime. Yeah, and that, uh, I think that's my point. It's no. Yeah, how many people were on board? But I think that he probably views it exactly. like that. Exactly. Hundred and yeah, there are one hundred and thirty-eight victims on board that plane, dickhead. Oh, plus the yeah, crew and the and those poor the banking board. executives who had to count out five hundred thousand dollars worth of. $20 notes and put them in a... I know. Oh, back in the teller. They'd be like, oh, yes, also I Also on a time frame, Yeah, right? but they'd be like, oh, I was the top teller. That's why I'm a manager now, but I've, I've lost <laughs> my skills. I've lost my skills. I can't... Yeah. You remember the old days when you have a yeah, sponge yeah. with a bit of water in it so that you could, you know, you can... Yes, Instead of licking your finger. Oh, they're licking yeah, yeah, yeah. your finger. Could you imagine yeah. how dry their mouths would go? Yeah. Get me more water in this sponge. I can't yeah. count these $20 faster. Yeah. And they were paper, so they'd be sapping it all away. <laughs> oh, yeah. Think of how dirty yeah. their fingers would be oh. at the end of that too. And how spit-covered the notes I saw a were. thing the other day on one of those oh, TV programs. It's about, it was about Sydney Airport actually, and it was talking about the sniffer dogs and how sniffer dogs, you know, obviously can sniff out drugs and food and whatever else, but they can sniff out and currency. And dirty undies. They can sniff out currency. And they the idea is they go up currencies. to them, currency and they go, you know, because they were saying it's not actually a problem to bring and take currencies but they want to know you have to declare it over a certain amount. It's obviously doing 10,000 bucks or something. Yeah. yeah. So they were showing people going through the lineup, or, you know, sorry, standing in the lineup to go through customs or else, and the dog would go up to people. And there was one man and they went up to the dog was, you know, going towards his front pocket. And they said, guy, have you got any cash? And he said, yeah, I do actually. He said, but I've got it in my, you know, my bag, my crossbow Fanny bag, pack. Whatever. Fanny pack. Yeah. yeah, exactly, which he just had a different way. They asked him to go and have a look anyway. <laughs> he didn't have more than 10000 but he had quite a lot. Uh, so he didn't do anything wrong, but they, they said to him, did you move it? He said, yeah, I had had it in my pocket. So the dog got an extra biscuit because he was so good. But <laughs> I didn't, I thought, well, gosh, it's one of those things that I think people don't think of when they think, oh, well, they can sniff out drugs, obviously. But no one's thinking about money. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. Not that we're moving great amounts, no. unfortunately, not that we're moving great amounts of money around, but. Can they sniff out the type of currency? Because I feel like, you know, if it was euro or US dollars or something, you know, you'd want them sniffing at that. But if it was type bar. Or something something where it's like a million of them means $10. The the, the rupee. The smell isn't strong enough, so it's not many. Yeah. 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 I don't know the answer (laughs) to that. Don't worry about it. No, that's just, that's $10 you found, (laughs) not $10,000. Yeah. 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 Good job. Good job, mate. You can have half a schmack over that. <laughs> yeah. What a bloody waste of time! <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. What about you guys on sentencing? I've thrown him mm. out of a plane. Yeah, I know you went. You went heavy. 
I'm impressed by the police work. That's good. I, I think, you know, yeah. we often talk about the challenges of capturing criminals back in that time yeah. because you didn't have, you know, computer links and all of that, right? And, and quite and quickly yeah, determined the list of suspects based on who had come over at that time. Yeah. All paper-based. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that part of the crime. So the, the crime was in yeah. May of 71 and in 72, and in January of 72, they're sending yeah. them or they're sending Yeah, and as you said, to go through like 14,000 Incredible. Tips, you know, people ringing up, 14,000 people ring up. Mm. You know, like, would you have taken the tenant... Yeah. With the funny floorboards, seriously. I'm I'm a bit suspicious know, about like, this bricklayer though. Call a freaking handyman. Um but I'm a bit suspicious. Yeah. Who turns around and says, Oh, uh, there's some bricks that were laid before I got here. Mm-hmm. Well, I anyway. reckon he heard something yeah, and then probably. saw that. That makes sense. So I went, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Swanny, do you want a sentence? Yes, I will sentence. I think that um, oh, what, yes. I, what I liked about but I liked about the the investigation was I liked the fact that when they'd found someone who obviously just understood, like old school, understood um, accents and dialects, and that's you know someone obviously understood that the British one. Okay, the they, things, yeah, yes, take it right down to that sort of was in the Midlands, or whatever. I thought that was it wasn't that was from Birmingham. That. Yeah, but, you know, that was that Richard was arrived from Birmingham. <laughs> I don't know, I was trying to think what motivated them. I was trying to come up with something a bit, you know, pointed about them being greedy, but I I, I think I'm gonna err on the side of something closer to what um Schmier did, which was that the psychological trauma that they have imposed on all of the people on that plane, the pilot, the crew, and obviously all the passengers. Because I I don't have a problem with with flying, but I certainly know people who do and the anxiety that they suffer. And they might and fight a lot, yeah. <laughs> maybe we could include include that. Maybe, maybe they are destined to to express themselves a, in different ways, <laughs> <laughs> to feel a high level of anxiety <laughs> all the time, which also leads them to have great flatulence problems. Flatulence, exactly. Yeah, some stinky bum action. Oh God! So that they are always they can never not be known where they are. They, Everyone you know, knows they, from the miasma of smell that that, that smell. nervous flyer is here. Correct, yep. nervous flyer is here. That that's a constant state for them. They're always stinky and feeling very anxious. Okay, <laughs> done. And boys, right? So I think I want to sentence them to a new course that is going to be offered by one of the TAFEs in uh, Victoria. <laughs> which is a cert for in how to get away with crimes. Oh. And it's going to be run by you, Schmitty, obviously. <laughs> but oh, but get I get on think to the instructional that, design right now. Yep. Yeah. To, to do so well to actually get that money and then be so and be bad so at so stupid. At, at, at just, get, I'll get just buy myself so the most quickly. expensive car I can find. <laughs> And I've, like, I've been like, earning five bucks ridiculous. a week and now I've got an E-type Jag. Like, idiot. I could do anything with this money and I'm going to get caught within a couple of months. They could like, have bought an island, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Idiots. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they so, don't want to get on a flight so worried about someone looking in their suitcases. Yeah. All right. Well, good one. <laughs> so for in Schmidt's well course, which will go that. for seven years because that's the punishment. Yeah. And it will be the dullest course ever. Yes, absolutely. Building the tension. All right. Well, thank you very much. Enjoy your day out in Milan, boys. 
Absolutely. And uh, Swanee, enjoy Barbie. Well, I'll have a cinema with my kids, so I yeah. will uh, yep. until uh, next time. I got a lot of laughs out of it. See how you go. Absolutely. All right. Until we meet again, as we say every week, miss you already. Ciao. 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 Bye. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to Trial by Wine. You can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com. Please rate, review and subscribe to Trial by Wine on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com, Trial by Wine. Or visit our website, www.trialbywine.com to donate to us. Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com.